What's going on, y'all? It's Brandy McGee, and of course, I want to thank you for joining Inside the Room with me, yours truly, Brandon McGee, where we discuss real-life topics that reach lives well beyond uh, these virtual four walls. Um, as always, I, I can't, again, thank y'all enough for joining me and gathering people from all walks of life to step inside this space in an effort to gain perspective on how we as a collective body, community, can educate and uplift our communities. I got a treat for y'all today. Um, I have a very, very phenomenal activist, professor, scholar, and hip hop historian here with me inside the room. Um, we're gonna, not we, he will, dissect the history um, uh, of Black people in many forms, uh, and probably more. I might even ask him to spit a little, you know, little Kanye West here and there. I don't know, who knows? Uh, but I wanna welcome inside the room, uh, Dr. Jeffrey O.G. Um, Akbar. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I always do before we jump into these conversations um, is preface our, our discussion with, with a quote um, that, embodies the important components of any given episode. Uh, and so in particular today, I really want to take a quote um, from Dr. Agbar's, um, and I, I, I want to share with you, or rather, as he emphasizes the role of hip hop, um, ha it has played, excuse me, an influence in systems um, and approach. And I quote, um, what's most interesting to me, he says, is the great rise in activism even before the election. And this is real appropriate because we are in midterm elections. Never before have we um, had protesters shut down major thoroughfares in major cities on this scale. These crowds are multiracial. They are Black and White and Hispanic and Native Americans. And the thing is, these crowds are listening to hip hop. This music has become common ground. It has become a connecting force. That's interesting. I mean, we could probably sit here and unpack that. That is a loaded um, quote uh, from our special guest on today. Um, I would read his bio, but he would probably stop me. Um, I want, and I mean, it's impressive, y'all. And for all of my Morehouse folks, he is a Morehouse man. Yes, he is. Uh, he received or earned his, <laughs> y'all got to see him. Uh, he earned his MA and PhD in U.S. history with a minor in African studies from Indiana University uh, in Bloomington. And since 1997, y'all, he has taught at the University of Connecticut's Department of History and served in many, many roles from the director of the Africana Studies Institute, associate dean for the humanities and the College of Liberal Arts and Science to becoming the university's vice provost for diversity. In 2014, he became one of the founding directors of the Center for the Study of Popular Music. 
his resume goes on, y'all, but I want to take this moment. I wish I had a crowd of people to just applaud him, but wherever you are, I want y'all to give a round of applause to today's special guest inside the room, Dr. Jeffrey Ogbar. What's up, man? Hey, sir. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me inside the room. Uh, you know, it's an honor. I, I see you around the state of Connecticut. I see you in Greater Hartford. I see you making moves. I see you leading. I see you in different spaces. And as I mentioned before, you're incredibly young and energetic. And uh, I thought that you, I, I see why you don't have any gray hair in your beard, man. I just thought you had an easy life, but you're, you're very young. Man. You, haven't you just don't see it. My entire years. beard is gray. <laughs> <laughs> you hide it well. You got it well. So, pleasure so to be here. So welcome, welcome again. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, I mentioned like this hip hop, I talk about African studies and all this other stuff, but like making a connection to hip hop and you being PhD, not an honorary, nothing against honorary degrees, but like you earned it, you worked your way on up, you've got something to say. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about you. Who are you? Give us a little bit of insight. So. My, my wife always tells me that I need to be uh, economical with my words. You know, I can be long-winded like a lot of professors. So I'll do my best to put it in a very, very short um, statement. So born in Los Angeles, I mean, excuse me, born in Chicago, but raised in Los Angeles. Uh, so I, we moved to Compton from Chicago when I was in six, when I was six years old. And we moved from Compton to South Central the next year. And I lived there for most of my time growing up, so around 14 years old. And then we moved uh, around a lot, but I still lived in LA, graduated high school, and moved to uh, Atlanta for college. And uh, you know, went to Atlanta for not really moved to Atlanta, but lived in it, lived in Atlanta. I didn't go back. I didn't have the sort of financial resources to go back for Christmas or Thanksgiving when I was an undergrad. So. I um, only went back home twice my entire four years in college. I went back after my freshman year that summer and after my junior year. And then grad school, Indiana University, as you mentioned, and I've been here in the Northeast ever since. So my, my interest in hip hop is really mm -hmm. fascinating to, to, as a scholar because I'm not trained in ethnomusicology. I'm not trained in cultural studies and I'm not trained in any fast. I don't play instruments. I can't spit bars. I can't do anything musical. <laughs> I can't even dance. Hey, man, you messing up my surprise. I thought you were gonna drop some knowledge. No, nah, I, mean, I wish I could. I wish I could drop some bars on you, man. But I can't. I can't spit hot fire or anything like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I uh, I do rap in the shower when no one's listening, right? But um, that's from my own ears. But I do have, um, like most people, of my I'm born the same year that Jay Z, Diddy, and Ice Cube are, and that's that's '69, and uh, one year after. LL one year younger than Will Smith. And so you kind of get an idea of where I am generationally, right? And so, you know, all after, I don't know any African American males my age or a year or so older or younger who didn't grow up listening to hip hop. And hip hop was a sonic backdrop to their lives. And whether they still listen to it at my age or not is another story, but everyone grew up listening to it. And you went to parties, your, your first kiss, you went to the prom, you went to, um, using the parks and so everything hip-hop was always there in your life and, and big life events when I got to graduate school I studied 20th century U.S. history with an emphasis in African-American history uh, and my first book was on the Black Panther Party and the Nation of Islam primarily looking at the Black Power movement but I was I gave a talk one time that, uh, I was teaching a class and a student really enjoyed the talk that engaged 
music. And I, I explained that to really appreciate music, not just African-American music, not just like R&B, uh, jazz and blues and everything else, but music in general. So to really appreciate the art of Marvin Gaye, for example, saying what's going on, you have to understand the historical moment that Marvin Gaye is talking about, right? So when Aretha Franklin says she, when she demands respect, although it might not be the meaning of the person who wrote the song respect, the fact that Aretha Franklin, a black woman, sings that song in the middle of the women's liberation movement and the black freedom movement, that it actually resonates and is received in a certain way in that historical moment, right? So it means something um, when Dina Simone sings Mississippi Goddamn. So when I gave this talk, I had a student in the class who really enjoyed it and I brought it all the way up to hip hop. And she suggested I do something um, on that talk. And believe it or not, there was a professor in that talk that liked it and suggested I write an article on it. And I wrote an article, and that article was published in the Journal of Black Studies in, in 1999. It became a one-hit wonder. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of scholarship on hip-hop. And it, this is the late 90s. The article came out. It became one of the highest cited articles in the journal for a couple of years. And it got the attention of um, an academic press. They came to me and said, would you be interested in writing a book on it? And so what's the name? What was the name of that piece that you, you wrote again? What was the name yep. of it? It's called Slouching Toward Bork, uh, something like self-criticism in hip-hop. The Slouching Toward Bork was an article, and it became a, and Slouching Toward Bork was a, um, a, a take on Robert H. Bork, a Supreme Court nominee from Ronald Reagan, mm -hmm. who was a failed Supreme Court nominee. You might remember him. And he was this right-wing wild man who uh, wrote a book called Slouching Toward Gamora, where he blamed pop culture for social ills. And he talked about hip hop in particular as being a social danger. So what I did, the article explained that there are a lot of people who criticize hip hop. And you're, although you're super young, I know that you are aware of all these people who attack hip hop at different stages. Larry Boycott, right. they sued Tupac because a cop got killed in Texas. Yep, yep, yep. You know, Ice T got dropped from uh, Time Warner. Ice Cube's video. I didn't uh, know that. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Ice T uh, had a, a rock group called Body Count. And they had a song called Cop Killer in 1992. Yes, yes, and, yes, yes. Yeah. And so you have you have censorship, you have people whose albums were banned, you have videos banned, you have protests. And the interesting thing, like a lot of people don't know this. And we live in an age of after 9-11, we have this age of terrorism. And so we have these geopolitical forces that are typically you have, you have this recession right now, you have a, um, inflation, you have the Great Recession years ago, you have these really big issues. But people are surprised when you explain that. In the presidential election cycle of 1992, one of the most important issues for the people who were vying for the position of the most powerful person in the planet was the danger of rap music. So you have President. So wait, so just put it into context for some of our younger viewers who were born in 1992. Um, that's not me, obviously, but Daddy Bush was in office yep. during that time. Yep. Um, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, you're right. And you George Herbert Walker Bush was running for a second term. He was running yep. against Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton. Was, mm -hmm. uh, governor of Arkansas. And you had uh, other presidential candidates and senators and other folks who were coming out. And people argued that rap music was a particular social danger. And then they argued in, the, in 1996, it came up again. In this case, it was Robert, it was um, Bob Dole running against Bill Clinton and company. I remember, I remember that fool. And Bob anyway. Dole argued again, like Dan Quayle and uh, Bush before, that 
rap music was a particular danger to the country, you know, the fundamental danger to the fabric of the United States. And so uh, Bill Clinton attacked this rapper named Sister Soldier. You have Bob Dole who attacked uh, Tupac. You have all these people. And then you have uh, civil rights activists who are Seagull or Sucker and others, uh, Calvin Butts, minister, good people who mean well, right? But they were attacking rap in different forms of rap, gangster rap, that's mm-hmm. hyper misogynistic rap, but also people were attacking political rap like Public Enemy, right? And a rapper right. out of the Bay Area called Paris, who were not gangster rappers, but they were self-defined revolutionary rappers who were critiquing capitalism, police brutality, white supremacy, war, all these different things. So you have people being attacked in all these angles. And it's really surprising for my students to think that at a moment when people are vying for this position of power, that one of the greatest threats to American civilization is Black culture, a facet of it, right? A facet of Black culture. So, so we, we talk about this and unpackage it. So I gave this lecture and that article, that the article really looked at how hip hop artists themselves are critiquing their peers. And anyone who's a real hip hop head, someone who especially goes back, you know that hip hop artists will call out other artists for being whack mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, sellouts, and in some cases being Uncle Tom's or being Coons and that kind of thing. So, so you have a group called uh, that you're familiar with that came out, you know, uh, 15 years ago with the album, about 15 years ago called The Minstrel Show, group out of North Carolina, Little Brother. Yeah, yeah. Remember Little Brother, yeah. So you're, and, and then uh, Public Enemy had a, um, a song called Burn Hollywood Burn off their uh, 1988 album where they critique Hollywood's exploitation of black images, like him, yep. minstrel sambo figures. You know, a lot of artists had talked about this. Nas has a song called Cool Picnic, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have a lot of mainstream artists who are critiquing their peers for fund- fundamentally being coons, being minstrel figures, being anti-black caricatures of black folks, including mm-hmm. these gangster rappers who traffic in languages, a language of misogyny, celebration of the drug trade and all that. So the article really just said, hey, um, I know there are a lot of people who criticize hip hop, but let's look at how hip hop itself critiques its peers while simultaneously critiquing society. Because Bob Dole doesn't critique society. Bob Dole doesn't talk about capitalism. Bob Dole doesn't talk about racism. Bob Dole doesn't talk about the conditions that give rise to gangster rap. Bob Dole doesn't talk about war unless he's endorsing it, right? So, so we were talking about how hip hop artists themselves are engaging in issues that these politicians are too weakly, too cowardly, or too deeply invested in a system that's corrupt itself to really engage in. And so they're not really worried about the pop culture, they're worried about the messages that these people are having that challenge their own hegemony, their own power, their own mm-hmm. corruption, their own racism, right? And so that was really what um, was the inspiration for me to write this, this article that then became the book, Hip Hop Revolution. And that's how I got into hip hop. But wait, so, I mean, you said a lot. You just said a, a whole lot. I don't, I feel like- Sorry, man, I know, I know. No, 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 I feel, no, 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 no. I mean, I'd rather sit here and just listen. And sometimes I got to be like, yo, you interviewing, you got to be on, you got to, because the knowledge that you're dropping is so relevant to today's conversation. When you speak of the social activism that exists, the protesting and the post sort of assassination of George Floyd and beyond, or we can go back to Emmett Till, okay? And talk about how many of these artists you bring up nina simone i listen to her to this day um sometimes i have to turn her off a little bit because it'll spark something in me that you know it's like rage and being a person who has been 
able to be on both sides of this conversation as a former elected official, now sort of inside working for an official, um, you tend to see things through a, a different lens. And what I'm getting at is these people have power. And, and I'm wondering like, what's happening to many of the artists who have these platforms Jay-Z, Nas, Kendrick Lamar, just to rattle off a few, like, have they forgotten? And I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing, but have they forgotten the power in their voice? I mean, I, I, I took a look at your, your bio and it says, you know, you studied Black nationalism and social justice movements. And when you break it down, you know, Black nationalist activism revolves around the social, political, and economic empowerment of Black communities and people, um, especially to resist sort of their um, assimilation into the mainstream culture, white culture, uh, through integration or otherwise. Am I missing something? These people with money, artists, rap artists, with money, voice, platforms, influence, why aren't we why aren't we beating that drum like we were 30, 40 years ago? And maybe we are. And it's just a different approach. It's a different way. I don't know. But I'm sure you get the question that I am trying to get at in that, have we missed the mark with some of the artists that are now replacing the Marvin Gaze and all of the folks that you mentioned, Public Enemy, all of those folks? What's happening right now when we, when we begin to talk about liberation in the Black community today? That's a great question. Uh, I think that when we're in the moment, as a historian, I'll, I'll say that I think that when people are in the moment of historically significant events, they're not always aware that this moment is historically significant. Right? It's not, it takes a minute for them to kind of get back and then appreciate certain things. So um, I'm not sure that people were always aware that someone like um, Dr. King was as, and it seems kind of like a no-brainer for us now to think of King as this magnificent leader and a figure with sort of, you know, near universal praise and celebration, right? But you know, as as someone who's, I'm sure, very, very well informed of, of things that uh, at no point did any poll in the United States show that Dr. King had the majority approval rating of most Americans, right? So so now- he's like, First of all, oh, Black so people didn't even like him. A lot of black people didn't like them, uh, and and black people, because the polls are always like most Americans, but um, you know they didn't disaggregate by race. I suspect mm -hmm. that if you asked black people, they would have been much more clearly much more favorable. I would think that most black people uh, favored him, saw him approvingly, but there were, as you mentioned, black folks who didn't like him either. Either he got stabbed, you know, he got stabbed. well, the woman was crazy, but she was a little off. Yeah, yeah, you know, he got, but. Uh, he was called an Uncle Tom, right? There were people by 1965, he came to Los Angeles when there was a Black Rebellion in August of 65, and when he came out, he literally was booed. And this is three years before his assassination. So it's not like this is right before his assassination. There were African-Americans, to your point, who didn't approve of Dr. King, not because they thought, and for different reasons, like some thought that he was too radical, that he was pushing too much. Uh, and some people thought, thought that he was not going far enough. Some people thought that turning the other cheek as they sort of imagine King's politics or read his mm -hmm. politics is cowardly. So you have, you have different reasons, but most African-Americans from what we know believe King was a good person doing great things, even while he was alive for Black folks, right? But 
again, to, to go back to the thing, issue about music, I'm not sure that, let's look at someone like Marvin Gaye. When Marvin Gaye came out with uh, What's Going On in 1971, Barry Gordy advised him against it, as you know. Yep. Barry Gordy explicitly said this would undermine his career. This would be professional suicide. And there were a lot of people who said the same thing to Billie Holiday when she sang um, Strange Fruit, right? And when, mm -hmm. when um, Nina Simone came out, she was actually, if you want to call it apolitical, someone can be apolitical, but she didn't talk about current events when she first came out. And Nina no. Simone sort of just talked about love ballads and different things, but she wasn't mm -hmm. talking about the social political landscape before her. And it was Lorraine Hansberry, who was a personal friend of hers, who instructed her and said, hey, you know, you have a, like Brandon McGee saying, you have a big platform, you have a big perch, you have a high perch, people can see you, your voice is amplified, you can say something meaningful to the people, it will resonate in a special way, right? I'm a playwright, I can do something, but only so many people will see my play every night. Many more people can hear your songs on the radio mm -hmm. every day, multiple times a day, right? And so Nina Simone was inspired. So when you think about someone, I think for me personally, when we go in, in the future, 50 years from now, I suspect that people will look at our historical moment and marvel at the, the fortitude, the audacity, the courage, the creativity, the activism of people in the summer of 2020, right? That this is unprecedented, that people took to the streets in ways that people have never done in the history of the United States, over 700 cities and towns over the course of a month, right? And then people will look at the music and find within that, they'll find these outstanding figures. They'll see the Kendrick Lamar, right? And they'll be like, wow, look at the kind of work that Kendrick is doing, right? Look at the kind of work that J. Cole, I mean, these people came to the streets, like J. Cole came out to the streets. Um, it turns out that Jay-Z and Beyonce gave money to bail people out of jail in um, Baltimore, right, after um, Freddie Gray. And so people will marvel at the work of Lemonade, right? People will marvel at Jay-Z's video the story of OJ, right? And I think that the people will talk about how these artists here and there did that. People won't be talking about future. They probably won't be talking about Migos, you know? They won't be talking about, um, like, back, say, 10 years ago, and they'll talk about, like, you know, Yin Yang Twins in the early 2000s. I don't think people will be like, yo, she like Yang Twins. Twins. <laughs> you know, it's go all the way back, right? I don't, think, I don't think that they will resonate in that way. But also, in the 1960s, everybody wasn't Lou Simone. Everybody wasn't Marvin Gaye, right? And so mm -hmm. those are the outliers, right? And I think that 50 years from now, we will recognize these outliers. And that's why people like Nina Simone and, and Marvin Gaye are important because they're, they're not like the mass. I mean, these are people who draw mm -hmm. our attention because they're, they're different, right? And they have this message. And I think that Kendrick is one of those, I mean, people will be studying Kendrick for 100 years from now, people will be looking at Kendrick Lamar, you know? I, I have no doubt. I mean, Kendrick <sighs> is that brilliant. I just wish all stars, and this is just me being naive for just a moment, I wish the stars could align almost perfectly and we create opportunities for all of the folks that you mentioned during their respective times, Nina Simone, um, uh, uh, Aretha Franklin, although I think she got a little mileage out of her activism. Um, but you get my point, like I wish it could just all come together and give give way to change and, and progression and not necessarily like, okay, we have this person who is fighting the good fight, uh, but it's only after 50 years from the time they fought that fight that we actually see real change. Um, so 
so in, in, in saying all this, before we, we take a, a quick break, um, what, what are your thoughts, and this is sort of off script, um, but what are your thoughts um, on like social activism today by many of our young people? Um, and it's just an open-ended ended question that I'd love to kind of hear, because I feel like every time there is a mass shooting or a killing of a, another Black man or individual, a person of color, or any of these people who represent the BIPOC community, um, there is an onset, an increase of activism, and then it sort of fizzles away. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts um, on today, where we are? Yeah. So I would personally, I would separate the responses to mass shootings from the shootings of unarmed black people. Thank and you. And that they're, they're sort of the, the racial violence is outside of the, you know, the racial violence, like we saw in Buffalo, which is simultaneously a mass shooting. And then you have what we saw in Texas a few days ago where. And, and, and let me just say this. Thank you for clarifying. Um, because I was in a conversation earlier on this same topic, and this person sort of, and I did exactly what I argued against, like they combined both as if they're just one and the same, and they aren't. Yeah, so yeah. just to kind of be clear for the audience, I, I, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah, I think there, there are some different different issues at play here, although they may be overlapping at, the time, at times. Uh, I think that you have, for a case of police who someone who, like, they killed Tamir Rice, right? 12-year-old boy, cops jump out of the car, claim that they said multiple times when he put down the gun, he didn't, he brought, he started to raise it towards them and they had no choice to fire. Turns out that security camera shows they lied. Um, they came up and within two seconds, they murdered this, well, murdered the technical, a legal term, say they killed this child who did not point a gun at them. And of course, it was a play gun, they didn't know that, but they did not, um, say, put it down multiple times, do all the things they said, and these guys got off, right? And so when, when you think about that, how do you deal with that? I, I do believe that, that protests are meaningful. Uh, I do think that they can have some effect, some change. I think that policies can be affected. There are states that have banned chokeholds and those sorts of things. Uh, body cameras, of course, are, are in place. But I do think that there's, there's, we're not where we want to be, but there has been some change. The, the, the marches around mass shooting, I'm, I'm, I'm completely 100% jaded on that issue. Uh, when it comes down to- Not more than party. me. Not uh, more than me. Not oh, more yeah, than I'm, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I, I might have yeah, one for your money. Like, I think that, <laughs> and let's, 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 just be, let's just look at the facts of the matter, right? Let's take yeah. um, a, a, uh, a person like a duplicit, like even Trump called him lion's head and had Republicans calling him lion's head. Let's, let's take a duplicitous, cowardly figure like Ted Cruz, senator from Texas. Yep. Um, Ted Cruz or mendacious characters like Moscow Mitch McConnell, mm -hmm. that these people will say after a mass shooting, thoughts and prayers, it's terrible, uh, but I will do nothing at all to- To protect. Mitigate mm -hmm. the circumstance that led to this, right? I will do, I will make absolutely no gesture at all to change this. And the next time a whole bunch of people get killed in mass shooting, I'll say the same thing. And y'all could protest, all these little kids can come out of high schools in the suburbs or elsewhere and march and look cute and sympathetic and the more memorials and everything. But I will do the exact same thing. The Republican Party, they stand firm. They refuse to do anything about it. 
they may argue that it is an issue of uh, mental illness, which it may be, but they will do nothing about that either. They don't want universal health care. They don't want to expand mental illness. They don't even have checks for people to buy guns if they're suffering from mental illness to limit their access to guns. And so they want to do nothing at all any level. And the, the thing where I'm really jaded about this is that there's a certain segment of Americans, like these people who are registered Republicans, no matter what happens, there's no bottom. I've not, I've been convinced that there's absolutely no bottom for them to dislodge their fidelity to the Republican Party. And when it comes to a, if they have someone like uh, Trump, who lies, who cheats, who connives, who violates the law, who is under all sorts of investigations, unprecedented in the history of the United States of America of resignations, of, of um, indictments, of guilty pleas, of charges, of arrests. No presidential administration has been uh, burdened like that. With this guy, and even after January 6th, with all the sort of things, you still have these people who will vote for him. Like you still have roughly yeah. half of Americans who will vote for him. And there's no there's no bottom, like his sexual assaults, everything, right? So I think when it comes to mass shootings in a similar fashion, there's no bottom to the Republican Party fidelity. And they understand that. And so there's no incentive for, for them to do anything about it because they know that their their constituents are so loyal. They can do anything. And I say anything, I, unless someone can tell me something they can't, they can't do, I've not seen it yet. They can lie, they can cheat, they can lie, they can do nothing when it comes to issues that are very important. And they're anti-environment. I could go on this whole list. They could, they could literally say that I will do nothing to stop the increase of carcinogens in the soil, air, and water. I will weaken the EPA, which will increase your chances of getting cancer and cancer of your children out of destroy the environment. They'd be like, okay, I'm gonna still vote for you. Which is which is beyond my capacity to even think through. Like, how could one still support the madness, even if it is going to hurt and harm you? I still don't care, and and I, I think it's just this great hate um, for a certain population of people who happen to be black or of color. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love I just, that. A, a certain population just happen to be black, right? Exactly. So. Exactly. And that's it. And that's fundamentally it. And there's, there's a wonderful book uh, called Dying of Whiteness. Uh, this author came out a couple of years ago. I have it here. Uh, and so Dying of Whiteness, Jonathan Metzl, M-E-T-V-E-L. Uh, the book talks about, it's called The Politics of Racial Resentment, uh, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. And so to your point, before I read this book, and you and I have never talked about this, uh, you and I are, it, are perhaps on the same page here when it comes to the politics that we see before us, right? Mm -hmm. We have people who in Appalachia, who blonde hair, blue eyed, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants named Smith, Jones, Jenkins, Hamilton, who have teeth missing, who are suffering from meth, opioid addictions, whole counties suffering from high rates of uh, suicide and overdoses. You have people who are in desperate need of um, education. They will literally vote against the expansion of Pell Grants so their children can go to college. They will, they're in desperate need of increased living wages, but they will fight against the living wage. They will fight against taxes for the super rich, although they themselves are desperately poor. They will fight against infrastructure development, right? Although they, their bridges are falling down, their hospitals are in shambles, right? They fight against universal health care. They fight against, um, they have places that are environmentally destroyed because of 
coal uh, mining and destructive uh, forces in the environment in their local town, they will fight against those issues as well. And the thing is that this author argues that through all sorts of ways, you can see how they associate the Democratic Party itself, which stands for, which will actually expand Pell Grants, expand a living wage, expand healthcare. They see these things as minority programs and they stand against those programs. And so for them, they're like, no, I will in fact increase my chances of death just so I don't increase access to these things that are liberal programs that I see minorities as having. And so at the end of the day, we have someone like Ted Cruz who can always can do nothing when it yeah. comes to mass shootings. And these people, because they, and unless someone can prove me wrong, there's nothing that the Republican Party can do that will dislodge the fidelity of their, their constituents. And mass shootings, uh, you can have them every day for a month. And the Republicans will say, I'm, I'm going to do nothing about it, but give you thoughts and prayers. And, and y'all just got to cry through it. It's going to be all right. I, <laughs> I'm shaking. Long I know I'm long-winded, no, 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 no. but here I am. I'm literally okay. shaking my head because I, I still, I, it's hard for me in my right mind to understand that. Like, I just, I get it, you know, as I, I think if we were in the same space as um, Joe Madison of the uh, uh, Black Eagle on Sirius XM, and I, I listen to him when I want to get fired up every now and again. I don't know if you ever listen to yep. Joe Madison, um, but he he talks about um, cultural conditioning, uh, and um, for what it's worth, his definition of it is really assimilating to, you know, what you believe is the best way of life for your people and your kind. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what that actually means, but it sounds really good when Joe speaks to it. And I could only think of him saying that as you were talking, why would I, I support someone who does not have my best interest at heart in mind? It just like, it doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, those folks, if you're just tuning in um, inside the room, we are here. Uh, I am in class today, y'all. We are with Dr. Jeffrey um, Akbar, and he is spitting some knowledge, y'all. We're talking about um, a really well-informed, educated brother, um, really speaking truth, knowledge to power, um, and making a connection to the hip-hop culture. Um, and and we're just we're just talking. So please, please, y'all keep it locked right here on the official FUBU radio. We're going to take a quick break, um, but we're going to come back and we're going to jump right on in and continue today's conversation. What's going on, y'all? You are back inside the room with myself and Jeffrey Akbar. He he's here giving us some knowledge, y'all. Uh, and really, really helping us to understand the importance of our voice, uh, but making a connection to hip hop, the hip hop culture. Um, and um, we left off uh, talking uh, really, really, really passionately and deep on what's happening, current day politics. Um, and I always say this, a lot of what we're talking about does not reflect um, the official FUBU radio, and that is everything we're talking about is inside the room, myself and my special guest. 
Uh, but y'all better know. Y'all better listen. Y'all better put that third ear on uh, and, and really gain some knowledge as we navigate through this midterm election, uh, mass shootings, killing of Black folk. Uh, again, I mentioned this last week. My prayers are with the families in Buffalo um, who lost their loved ones. Uh, thank God there were um, a couple or maybe even three to be exact who were able to make it out. Uh, they're alive today. Um, I do know that there were some funerals that happened um, over the weekend. Uh, so again, I'm thinking about them. Uh, I'm thinking about the impact that will have on that community there in New York. And then as of recently, uh, the mass shootings uh, down in Texas. Um, but again, let's jump back into this conversation. Um, Jeffrey, can you talk with us just a little bit? Um, I mean, you've held fellowships at Harvard University, uh, the W.E.B. Du Bois Research Institute, uh, where you begin to develop your brainchild, Black Power, uh, Radical Politics in African-American Identity. What are some of the key themes um, you know, folks can take away from that novel, this novel, uh, that aligns with the Black images and misconstrued uh, perceptions we contend with today. All right. Yeah, th thanks a lot for it. Um, again, I really appreciate this platform and getting a chance to talk about my stuff. Uh, it's, it's not a novel, though. I don't, I don't, it's a straight historical uh, piece. I don't, my wife gets mad because I don't read novels and I don't really get down with that. And it's fine. I don't read, I don't read uh, fiction, <laughs> but I do, I do. Um, so your wife is probably like, you're so serious all the time. I know, man. She thinks I'm, um, I'm, I'm too narrow, man. But the book is. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, man. It's, um, it, it is a, like you said, it's a, uh, it's a big labor of love. And it, the, the big takeaway is that. Historians have argued that the Black freedom movement itself, which is composed of two distinct movements, the civil rights movement, which goes, the modern civil rights movement from 1955, roughly to 1968, uh, and then the Black power movement from 60, 1966 to around 1975. Typically, historians have argued that the civil rights movement was this uh, beloved community of white and Black confraternity working towards racial reconciliation and dismantling of white supremacist laws, chiefly by nonviolent social reputation. And that black power came up as a sort of evil twin, if you will, and had a lot of rhetoric, a lot of vitriol, a lot of slogans, a lot of rage, but left no institutional legacy. It was ephemeral. I mean, it just came and went, right? So this, this, this is what historians have argued before my book came out. And the book came out in uh, 2004. The first edition came out in 2004. So I argued that if you actually look at the Black Power Movement, you find there are two organizations that are chiefly responsible, two significant organizations, many organizations, but two organizations that are very, very uh, important to the development of the Black Power Movement. One was the Nation of Islam and its national spokesman, Malcolm X. And the nation provided a platform for an expression of Black nationalism, expression of black love, self-determination, self-pride, and that sort of thing. And then you have the Black Panther Party, which is one of the perhaps the most visible expressions of organizations in the Black Power Movement, a radical organization, a revolutionary organization that inspired many non-Africans. So uh, if you look at the legacies of Black Power, Black Power's institutional legacies are so common 
is so ubiquitous that we often take them for granted. For example, we don't think anything of the National Association of Black Journalists, right? We don't think anything of the National Society of Black Engineers. We don't think anything of the Afro-American Patrolmen's Association and League, right? The, these, these- Wait, what was that last group you mentioned? The Afro-American Patrolmen's League is an association of black police officers. Police officers, okay, okay. Yeah. All these organizations are products of the black power period. They come out of the black power era, they have black in their title, and they are driven by the impulse of the black power movement, which is to seek and achieve self-determination and resources for buying about black people, to create institutions for buying about black people. It's not black nationalism. And so black nationalism is the belief that black people should have their own autonomous nation state independent of the United States. A completely mm. different country somewhere, the Nation of Islam was a black nationalist or is a black nationalist organization. The UNIA, Universal Negro Improvement Association, Mark Garvey. These are people who are saying, I'm not trying to be an American. I'm not trying to be voting for these people in the United States. I'm not trying to be a Democrat or Republican. I'm not trying to integrate. I'm trying to create a separate black country somewhere else. That's mm-hmm. creating black nationhood. I know people use the word nation all the time, like Husky Nation, Dodger Nation, Raiders Nation. You know, we're not talking about that. We're talking about actually a nation state with its own army, own military, own government, own money, that kind of thing, right? So this is black nationalism. Black power was not black nationalism. Black nationalism was something that influenced black power, but black power said, hey, we're going to be in the United States, but um, we still need to control the institutions in our community. And we are actually in love with Black folks. We like Black people. We think Black is beautiful. We think that Black institutions can be great. We just need resources. We don't think that integration is a promised land for Black people. So the civil rights movement, literally in its earliest stages in particular, argued that we want to be included into the fabric of the United States the way that Jews are, the way Irish are, the way Italians are, the way Poles are. But then Black people at a certain point were like, you know what? I was raised in a black church. I like the cadence of our ministers. Right. I, like the, I like the preaching. I like the choir. When I went to college, I enjoyed step shows. I pledged Alpha. I pledged Kappa. I pledged Q. I pledged AKA. I like the institutions that black people created. I love the fact that we have black spaces where black people have their own thing, their own jokes, their own humor. And there's, there's something that's beautiful about the institutions that black people have created. And I don't want to lose that. And so Black Power found a, a really easy expression in something that was already there among African Americans, right? We had these institutions that were already there that were a consequence of being excluded from white institutions. But by mm-hmm. the time we had open doors to white institutions, black journalists were like, we could just join the wide, the, the big association of journalists at large, but if we create the National Association of Black Journalists, we can create scholarships directed towards black people. And we control the organization, right? We're not going to be 12% of this other organization. We'll be 100% of our own organization. We control with resources. We control what's important. We control the narrative. We control everything. And that essentially is Black Power. So the legacy, my argument is that the legacies of Black Power are everywhere. When we graduated UConn a couple weeks ago, there were African-American students with Kente cloth stoles. There were students that came out of the African-American Cultural Center. There were students who were African-American studies majors, African-American studies minors. There are students with the names Malika and Jamal and Kenya and Mia. All those things are products of Black power. None of that stuff existed before 1966. Nowhere in the United States of America. You didn't have Black people named Mia and Kenya and Jamal before 1966, right? And so those are things that we think of. And so these historians were often very hostile to the idea of Black power. They were hostile to the idea that there was some kind of institutional legacy that we could see, but they were all wrong. And that's the beauty, really, of what, I, what historians do. Historians 
a lot of times people think that historians write books and that, that history is fixed. And in fact, like these events may have passed, but historians are always debating the, the events. Historians are always debating the significance of the events. Historians are disagreeing with each other. Historians are engaging in, in really critical discourse. And we see that being played out right now with these right-wingers who are attacking so-called, well, not attacking critical race theory. And they're not really attacking critical, some of them are attacking critical race theory um, because they hate the idea of their history being exposed for what it is, right? I mean, you have these that, people- That part. Yeah, that, right. I mean, you've mm -hmm. had you see these memes where you see these low these kids from 1950s and 60s who are spitting at children, and yep. they're mad that their grandchildren will see them in those pictures spitting at kids, right, or throwing rocks at children. And so they're mad. They, they're getting mad, saying we can't teach that history. Uh, but I, I have no doubt that, uh, like in all these other societies where books are banned, where ideas are banned, where journalists are banned, where scholars are banned, that uh, these people will see themselves on the wrong side of history. Hmm. I, you know, I thought of um, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People as you were talking, and oftentimes, you know, on surface level, um, most people think the organization, because of its involvement during the 1960s, was a predominantly Black institution, when in fact, it was not. Um, could you enlighten us, like, would they be categorized in sort of this sort of black power movement or that was more of an ally type organization body of efforts uh that helped to advance the causes of uh uh the civil rights movement and even today like yeah, why did uh, NAACP get so lost in the shuffle you know post 1960s 70s um and and slowly trying to climb out to be relevant today and by the way, I still support NAACP, um, but for the sake of the conversation. Yeah, excellent question. So the short answer is that the NAACP was not a member of the Black Power Movement. Its executive director was a guy named Roy Wilkins. Uh, uh, and Roy Wilkins was the most hostile public figure in the Black community to the Black Power Movement. In fact, he literally called it the mother of violence and the father of hate, a reverse Ku Klux Klan, a reverse Hitler. So he, he compared Black Power to the most despised, violent terrorist organization in the United States history. Right? Black Power advocates weren't going around burning down churches of white people. They weren't attacking white kids. They weren't raping, pillaging, and destroying the way the Klan did, right? But he called Black Power a reverse Ku Klux Klan. Uh, they weren't a mass murdering organization like Adolf Hitler, uh, but he called it, he compared it to Adolf Hitler. So Roy Wilkins was a black dude who was the executive director. And he- From Mississippi. And he, he hated, um, he was originally from, um, he, he graduated high school in Minnesota. Uh, I don't know where he might've been born. He might've been born in Mississippi. But Actually, I could, begin, I could be getting him mixed up with Medgar Evers. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, and Medgar Evers so, was, was a, a writer. I mean, as you say in LA, <laughs> he, he actually was a, uh, I have nothing bad to say about Megda Evers, right? Nothing bad to say about that. And the thing is, like, which is cool, I'm glad you brought Megda Evers because Megda Evers really demonstrates the ideological elasticity of the yes. NAACP because you have, you have local leaders like Daisy Bates, uh, yep. like Megda Evers, like uh, Robert F. Williams in North Carolina. North Carolina. From, yep. uh, Arkansas. And you have these people who are militant, hardcore, advocates of justice and freedom, right? They have guns and they're willing to protect and defend their families. And they don't equivocate about this kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they, um, 
you know, so to go back to Roy Wilkins, though, the NAACP, while its membership is majority black, its leadership had been, its presidents have been white for decades since its founding, right? So they had on their board of directors, they would have all these white people who were the presidents and that kind of thing. And um, Robert F. Williams, in fact, tells a story. He was head of the NAACP in Union County, North Carolina. And he went up to, he got called to New York City to the, to the headquarters of the NAACP. And they were uh, berating him for a comment he made. And he said Roy Wilkins was making all these comments. And Roy Wilkins looked over before he made a comment. He said Roy Wilkins looked over to a white man for approval to, to see if what he was about to say was good to be said. And he said he saw who was really pulling the strings here. <laughs> that, that's what uh, Robert Williams said. So oh, wait, uh, now, yeah. forgive me, I, I should know this. Roy Wilkins was an attorney by trade, right? And he... I don't know what he did by training. I want to say that he was at... He could have been, I think he was a uh, journalist or he could have been a journalist and an attorney. That's what it was. That's what it was. A journalist. Yeah. I got you. I got you. Wow. Very interesting. I, I did not know that about, about NAACP until you mentioned, um, mentioned that. Um, but a lot of people, when you think of NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, they believe it is an organization that was created by Black people and for Black people. And it is a must that you understand the history. Um, now, yeah. they're still in the business of, you know, helping communities of color. Um, current president, know him very well. Like, great organization. So I don't want nobody inboxing me talking about he <laughs> was bashing NAACP, farthest from the truth. Okay. I actually served as the Youth and College Division president for the state of Alabama uh, during my time at Alabama State University. So uh, I know about chartering and uh, youth councils and being president of the branch, all of that. So y'all chill out. I can feel y'all already. Um, but Dr. Dr. Agbar, um, as we as we wrap up, I, I really, you know, again, appreciate this opportunity to sit with you and hopefully we can get you to come back. Um, and, and just spit some more knowledge and, and help us to understand the importance of our role uh, in many of these spaces. Speaking of spaces, um, the Black population, um, from my perspective, is evolving uh, and entering into spaces uh, that have not been thought of previously. Um, what, what do you think, from your perspective, what do you think is a major contribution um, to this? Like, what are ways, just to bring it back to your wheelhouse, what are ways hip-hop has influenced this sort of evolution uh, of, of Black folks sort of doing big, big things um, on a positive note that have helped our communities? Oh, man, that's a, that's a great question. So I think that if you... Let, let's jump back a hundred and some odd years, and let's let's go back for just for convenience. Um, let's go back to 1910, right? And there were all sorts of images of black people in pop culture in 1910, and they were nearly exclusively servile characters that would appear in occasionally like involved build shows. Um, 
in just in, in children's books as novels and in advertisement as minstrels, buffoons, childlike, incapable of doing anything significant in life, dull, uh, lazy, shiftless, that kind of stuff. Jump up a generation to the 1930s, we have radio, the most famous radio show in the United States is uh, Amos and Andy, two white guys who put on so-called black voices and they do these caricatures of black folk. Uh, the most famous movie, uh, 1939, Gone with the Wind, you know, black people do speculous, you have these mammy, you know, you have uh, happy slaves, you have all these things. Mm -hmm. And and then when you get TV, you have more of the same, right? You have these, you have Amos and Andy, they get to TV, they actually hire black people who do the same sort of uh, buffoonish uh, antics. The cartoons, everything else. So the only spaces that people saw black people where they were not performing to white people's scripts, the only two spaces where whites could actually see black images in American pop culture, where they were not performing to a script handed to them by hostile, anti-black, racist white people. The mm. only spaces were music and music. That was it. <laughs> so you have one space. And so you, you have Duke Ellington, right? So Duke Ellington could perform, and Duke Ellington wasn't performing uh, to a script that white people made. He was a brilliant pianist. He was a brilliant composer. He was elegant. He was sophisticated. In many ways, he was an anti-minstrel character, right? Yeah. Uh, you could say the same thing about uh, Louis Armstrong, who smiled a lot and he grinned and people got mad sometimes. But Louis Armstrong was very principled on a lot of issues. And then you jump up to the 1940s, you have Miles Davis, you have John Coltrane, you have uh, Thelonious Monk and others in the 50s and 60s, but you have these musicians. But before you get Jackie Robinson in 1947, and before you even have we, didn't, we were not even visible in sports, right? You only had, the only space was actually music. And so we think about what black people could do in music is the only space where white people could consume images that were not written by the white hand. These black people still had contracts that were largely written by white record labels and distributed by white record labels and distilled and promoted by white controlled musical institutions in the United States. And by the time you get to the 1950s and 60s, when you actually have two images now where Black people are performing not to a script, you have sports and, and music, right? And those are two spaces where white people can see Black images, and you can see the capacity of someone like um, Roy Campanella or uh, Jackie Robinson or whatever other sport you, you want to see, you see Black people, Muhammad Ali or others. But then by the time you get to, to hip hop, what is interesting is that if you let Black people, without the, the institutional barriers and the hostile, uh, the, the, the firewalls preventing Black people from getting to the record industry that Duke Ellington experienced, right? Where Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong had to give away a large chunk of their money to white men in the music business because mm. that's the only way they could get paid. Get paid yeah. You don't have those issues now. And that's a consequence of the civil rights movement and the Black power movement, right? So by the time hip hop comes around, it doesn't mean that black people have unfettered access to, to corporate America. Right, what you right. do have is black talent that is still in a musical space desired by white people. And for whatever reason, even vicious, ignorant, uncivilized, hostile white supremacists like Thomas Jefferson, they, they like black music. I can't explain it, right? Even Thomas Jefferson <laughs> would right. say, well, you know, black people are inferior, but I do like their music. And for some reason, that's this one space going all the way back to the 18th century that white supremacists could agree on that they like black folks' music. So by the time someone like Jay-Z comes around, Jay-Z has a musical platform and his genius, if you want to call it that, his business aplomb, 
that he's able to negotiate deals that have, that have been unprecedented. So when Rockefeller Records comes around in the mid-1990s, Kareem Biggs, uh, Damon Dash, and, and Sean Carter come together, they create this label. They actually do things inspired, one, by people that came before them, like Cash Money Records. Cash right? Money, yep. And No Limit. And so they're looking at No Limit, looking at Cash Money, which themselves are looking at what Hammer had done earlier. And then Hammer is looking at what- um, you, We forget about Hammer. Like he yeah, really yeah. set the tone for all of this. Now he squandered all that money, but yeah, like yeah, he, you're right? You're right. <laughs> and, and and Hammer explains, and there's an interesting book called uh, "Nothing But a G Thing," which actually looks at business and hip hop. But uh, one of the things that you see people like Hammer, with Easy E, with Jay Prince out of uh, Houston, what uh, you saw with um, Luke Skywalker or Luke Campbell out of Miami, that you have these people who are like you can create our own little label here, distribute our own stuff, we can press, make our own cassette tapes and then our own CDs, control all the money. And then when they were getting these deals, they were like, you know, I could sell 50,000 in the state of California and still make more if I sold 500,000 with you guys, right? So that, make, that doesn't make any sense. So I'm not gonna sign with you, you know, and then Interscope, and then Interscope was like, well, all right, what if we do this? We sweep uh -huh. the deal. And, yeah. and slowly but surely, every deal that came up in the source, where you read in XXL, the source, that they got this deal, all of a sudden, and by the mid-1990s, when hip-hop was on precipice of becoming the most popular musical form known in the history of music and the history of the world, right? That these guys were saying, we're going to hold out until we get control of our masters, control of a, a greater percentage of our distribution rights, the things that Madonna never had, that Michael Jackson never had, Lionel Richie never had, Elvis never had. They did things that people had not done before. So you get a point when you have a certain black business sort of, I want, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to say genius, that occurs where they didn't graduate from Harvard Business School. You and I know people who graduate from HBS. We know people who graduate mm -hmm. from Wharton. We know people who graduate from all your little fancy schools. I'm not dismissing your schools, all those people, but they never got the deals that Biggs, that Damon Dash and, John, and Sean Carter got when they did their deals with uh, all these labels. And you get the first musician in history to become worth a billion dollars. When I tell people that, when I tell people that Jay-Z is the first musician to become worth a billion, I just gave this talk a couple last week, in fact. Uh, not even last week, it was Tuesday, this week. And I gave this talk. And I, and whenever I say that, people are like, nah, that can't be true. I'm like, it all right, tell, tell me it's who it true. is then. <laughs> and then people, I ask my who, who was worth a billion dollars before Jay-Z and music? I'm talking about a musical artist who became worth a billion. It wasn't Madonna. It wasn't Bono. It wasn't. It wasn't uh, McCartney. Had McCartney not gotten divorced, maybe he would have had it, right? But it was mm. not. Uh, you name it, right? It wasn't Michael Jackson. He had incredible debt, right? When he died. I said, yep. so, so who was it? And people started itching and scratching and stuttering. <laughs> but for some reason, it doesn't seem right that a black kid from Marcy Projects in Brooklyn, raised on one of the most violent moments in United States history, with the largest incarceration rate in the history of peacetime and civilized society, that this boy with everything stacked against him, right? With murder, the chance of incarceration, with pressing poverty, with all these things against him, the wind is in his face, full throttle, that he will become the guy who does that. And hip hop is a remarkable space where he's actually in this right historical moment. And he'd been born with all the same things, all the same interests and everything else, drive, 10 years earlier, he wouldn't have had this happen, you know? And, and and this is something about that historical moment, and and it's a consequence of, uh, you know, his choices, luck, opportunity. You know, and this this is remarkable. So hip hop hip hop demonstrates a lot. I, I argue that 
I, I quote Chris Rock here. Chris Rock said that a lot of times people will say, look at, look at and commend black people for its successes. Like, wow, look at black people. You got a, a black person as a president of Brown University, Ivy League University. You got black people as presidents of, of major corporations, Time Warner, right? CEOs right. Of, of the major Fortune 100 companies. You got black people who are uh, running universities, corporations, owning court. Look how far black people have come. And Chris Rock is like, no, what you should be doing is congratulating white people because black people always had the capacity to do this. White people didn't have the capacity to, to be fair. They didn't have the capacity to embrace a meritocracy. That someone got a job on merit, right? And there was, there was never a question of a black person to be editor of a major newspaper like the New York Times, right? Because black people had newspapers across the United States that they're editors of. It was not that they couldn't be a president of the university. Black people were presidents of universities. There were only black universities, but they were presidents of universities. It was that they, they couldn't be a great athlete. Jackie Robinson was a great baseball player the day before he got signed to Brooklyn Dodgers. It was a white person who opened up, the right? Opportunity, the, yeah. He's the one that became more civilized. So when they became more civilized, you should congratulate white people for becoming more civilized, becoming more fair, becoming more meritocratic. And this is a beautiful thing. And I, I applaud my white brothers and sisters for making this progress. And I think that together the country is much better off when people get jobs because of merit, right? And opportunities and not having closed doors and that kind of thing. Ooh, that's a segment in and of itself when we talk about merit um, and black folks. That yeah. would be great. Um, wow. So we could probably, you know, talk for another hour or so. I know folks gotta get off to church and do some other things. Um, but how, how can, well, before, before we close, um, we're, we're, we're in the process of celebrating Juneteenth, um, and help us understand, um, very briefly the importance of Juneteenth and similar to what we've done over the years with, um, Martin Luther King's holiday from just celebrating the life and legacy to really moving forward in action, um, what is the significance of Juneteenth and what are we, what, what should we be doing, you know, um, to really hold up the importance of, of Juneteenth? Like help us understand that really quickly. Yeah, so uh, I'll see if I can just, just quickly distill the historical significance. Uh, a lot of people think that it was, that the, the Emancipation Proclamation which was signed by uh, Abraham Lincoln, January, First, 1863, that it just took a long time before people who were enslaved in Texas got the word. And it was, and it was June 19, 1865. And that's not it. Thank you. So it wasn't, it took two and a half years for, I don't know how that circulated, but. Uh, I mean, that yeah. is like the thing, uh, Dr. Ugbar. People really believe, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't, doesn't take, it doesn't take two weeks for people in Texas to know that secession was under, underway. It didn't take two weeks for people to know who was elected president. It wouldn't take two years for people. But right, so, so people are wondering like why, they're like, oh, well, Professor Ogbar, why did it take so long then? It, it, was, uh, it wasn't that the enslaved people themselves uh, could all of a sudden just walk off plantations. The Emancipation Proclamation said that those people who were enslaved in states in rebellion to the United States are now hereby declared free. It did not end slavery in the United States. Slavery did not come to an end until the uh, 13th Amendment, which was passed after the Civil War, December 1865. So there were states like Missouri, Kentucky, um, West Virginia, Maryland, where slavery still existed 
before and after the Emancipation Proclamation because those states had not joined the Confederacy. So it only applied to the states that, that had been in the rebellion. And so, that, so the president did not have the authority to just unilaterally end slavery, first off. So the, the other issue now is why did it take so long for Texas? Um, people who were enslaved just two months earlier in Mississippi and Georgia and South Carolina and Virginia were still enslaved. So people think that it took two and a half years, but, but literally just two months earlier, everyone, everyone everywhere else in Confederacy was still enslaved. Yep. So you're really talking about a matter of between April and June, this, this little window here, where at the end of the war, there were pockets of people throughout the country, not just Texas, but other parts of the country, who did everything they could in their power to keep people enslaved and slaves. And it wasn't that the enslaved people didn't know that they should be free. It's just that you have absolutely no authority. If you have mm -hmm. a man, a vicious, horrible, uncivilized caveman who has guns on you and your family and can at any point do anything, like the cost of a bullet in his gun is nothing for him to, to kill you or your wife, right? Your wife. And he's like, you're going to work on my plantation so I say you're not going to work. And so some authority from the government comes in and tells me that you are now free, you're not free. So that actually happened throughout the United States. And even after June of uh, 1865, believe it or not, these cases happened throughout the country. But it was actually um, when federal authorities reached the, uh, Galveston and other parts of Texas, they made this declaration that they were gonna enforce this law that had freed people who were in these rebellious states. So that's what actually happened. Mm -hmm. So it was, um, and slavery, so it, it, slavery was a very, um, as an institution, as a practice, it did not immediately end, even after, I know we like to say Juneteenth, but uh, there were rogue enslavers throughout the country that continued to keep people in bondage for months after the end of slavery. You talk about- I would argue, I would argue years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you know it's, it's, it's really a wild thing. So, so but to, to neatly, to do it for symbolic reasons, Right, I think it's very, very important because it, it underscores that, um, there, you know, freedom, the United States history, I say the United States has a history of, of people who really, really like freedom, who like democracy, who like opportunities, who want justice. And you have a whole bunch of people who are unfortunately been in the majority who do not want those things. That's they right. don't want freedom, don't want justice, don't want democracy. They don't want uh, fairness and they will fight and literally die to protect with exclusive powers they have. And mm -hmm. Juneteenth is a consequence of it, right? It's, it's really a reminder that, that freedom, you know, people say it sounds all cliche, you know, freedom is not free, but, <laughs> but people actually will fight and die for it, but also fight and die to prevent you from having it. They will literally go out and, and lay their lives before your feet to prevent you from crossing the threshold of freedom, right? And so mm -hmm. this is what you have with the Civil War. You have people who are like, I'm gonna go out here and, and get my head blown off before I see someone looking like Brandon McGee walking around free. And they were they willing to do it. They're like, I will die. You know what I'm saying? So, so I think that when you look at this, it reminds us of just how how much people have fought and struggled for freedom. And uh it's a good, it's a good, easy, like and how we acknowledge it to your question. I'm not sure. Um, I know that people look at King the King Day as a day of national service. Uh I do not know. I, 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 your listeners, I apologize for my ignorance. I don't know what the, the sort of national um, uh, intent is when it comes to how we reflect on the team. Like what, what we I don't, do. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so I, I can't, I would say that personally, I would say that uh, make a point that you register people to vote. I would say go out there, make sure your, your cousins and them are registered to vote. Make sure you're mm -hmm. registered to vote. 
make sure you vote against people who don't want you to have health care, who don't want right. you to have a living wage, who don't want you to have Pell Grants, mm-hmm. who don't want you to have clean air, soil, and water. That, that I don't have to say it's a partisan issue. I, just, I, I have to tell people to vote Democrat or Republican. I just say this. You vote for the, the party who wants to constrict mass incarceration, the party mm-hmm. who wants to expand health care, the party wants to expand a strong environment, right? Because we, of all people, African-Americans and other people of color suffer from environmental racism, right? Toxic right. our environment. So you want a strong environment. You want to vote for someone who's going to increase the chance of your child going to college, right? That's right. Increase, and it just turns out that these are issues that are Democratic Party issues, right? Mm-hmm. If a Republican, if you live in a district where Republicans like, I want to have an increase in the minimum wage, I want to have a strong environment, I want to end uh, mass incarceration, I want to have uh, increased Pell Grant, vote for that person if that's, that's, a, right. if that's what that person said. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I want gun control. <laughs> you know, if, if, you just, if you get a Republican <laughs> like that, vote for that Republican. If the Democrat is, is voting against it, I, I say vote in your interest. So that, that's what I think people should do with Juneteenth. Register to vote, make sure all your stuff, your ducks are lined up. Make sure your kids, right? I mean, low hanging fruit for some mm-hmm. some people, maybe not for others. But education, I used to think it sounded cheesy when I was young. I was a young revolutionary. I used to think it sounded real cheesy and soft and all that. Education, I cannot underscore how important education is. I quote a friend of mine, he's a lawyer, Damon Scott. He said that education is a great disruptor to intergenerational poverty. It really is. Uh, education not the cure off for everything. It is. It does a world for disrupting intergenerational poverty. I see it in my family. Wow. I have cousins that I wish would graduate high school, who would go to college, who would yeah. get a trade. I don't think everyone has to get a college degree. And and this actually, by all measures, is a disruptor to all sorts of things. Your health conscious exercise, workout. I mean, black people are in terrible health. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to have a gym membership. You can do push-ups in your backyard or your living room. You can do That's right. free. That's you right. Walk around the block. Core, core is where it is. I'm in the gym right now. So I yeah, that's what I'm saying. You know, you could drink more <laughs> water and less uh, Gator and Gatorade and uh, Mountain Dew. I mean, all and, and water is cheaper than Mountain Dew. Man. I mean, it's, it's right. crazy. Like, there's, there's so much that black people can do. Uh, if, if anything, I would recommend, I say take health as an as important thing, voting as an important thing, education as an important thing. So, so in closing, um, Professor, let us know how we can gain access to you, follow you on social media, purchase your, 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 your work. Um, just help us, help us fill, it, fill, fill, fill that in so folks inside the room will know how to, how to keep in touch with you. Yeah, I, I should be um, more active, but I am on Twitter at Professor P R O F, not the whole word. Professor just P R O F. Let me make sure. First of all, let me make sure I'm following you. So it's all Professor. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll follow you back too. Uh, it's P R O F O G B A R. Prof Ogbar, and it's a long O like Obama. Ogbar. So Prof Ogbar. That's my my Twitter handle. I am uh, on Instagram, although I don't do anything on Instagram, so there's no need looking at me there. Uh, although I am. And of course, I'm on, I'm on Facebook. I'm the only Jeffrey Ogbar on Facebook, so easy to find. I am, um, my book, if you go to Amazon and just type in uh, my first and last name, Jeffrey Ogbar, you'll see all my books. And there are five different books that will come up. And uh, there's a new edition of a Black Power book. The book has done fairly well. It was a reissue with a, an updated version that brought in Black Lives Matter and other things in 2019. So there's a this is so a year before George Floyd, but it still talks about Black Lives Matter. And so the new edition is 2019. So you can see all those things on Amazon. And, uh, and thank you very much for the platform. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. And also, um, I just thumbed through his uh, 
Twitter uh, feed here, um, you were interviewed for a mini book. Um, y'all need to go to his, 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 his Twitter, uh, download his work, do what you need to do, check it out. Uh, but that's dope. Like <laughs> you're doing all kinds of things. Very humble. We need to get you to kind of, you know, get out of that box, get on, you yeah, gotta man, get you, on, man. you gotta get on Instagram. So, so a lot of the millennials, um, in this space of hip hop could really understand, um, the work and the importance of that work, um, and apply it to their, their movement on social media, uh, TikTok, you name it. Uh, but man, this has been great. Um, and as always, I want to say it again. No, so it's been great for me. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Yeah. Um, as always, I just want to uh, thank all of you who uh, tune in again every week uh, inside the room. Um, you already know where where I come from in terms of um, my encouragement to you. Make sure you do something for yourself. Um, you know, every week you're tuned in, you listen to me, uh, my guests, but I want you to accomplish something, whatever that something is. It could be your, your, your to-do list, finishing a book, exercising uh, for the first time in weeks, do something, but start somewhere. All right. And um, as always, just know that I love you. And as my good friend, uh, Jesse Jackson would say, y'all keep hope alive and keep on moving. All right. Uh, until next time, I love you. I, 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 I,